Chapter 3 of Iconoclastic Memories of the Civil War Bits of Autobiography by Ambrose Bierce. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Crime at Pickett's Mill There is a class of events which, by their very nature, and despite any intrinsic interest that they may possess, are foredoomed to oblivion. They emerged in the general story of those greater events of which they were a part, as the thunder of a billow breaking on a distant beach is unnoted in the continuous roar. To how many, having knowledge of the battles of our Civil War, does the name Pickett's Mill suggest acts of heroism and devotion performed in scenes of awful carnage to accomplish the impossible? Buried in the official reports of the victors, there are indeed imperfect accounts of the engagement. The vanquished have not thought it expedient to relate it. It is ignored by General Sherman in his memoirs. Yet Sherman ordered it. General Howard wrote an account of the campaign of which it was an incident, and dismissed it in a single sentence. Yet General Howard planned it and it was fought as an isolated and independent action under his eye. Whether it was so trifling an affair as to justify this inattention, let the reader judge. The fight occurred on the 27th of May, 1864, while the armies of General Sherman and Johnson confronted each other near Dallas, Georgia, during the memorable Atlanta campaign. For three weeks we had been pushing the Confederates southward, partly by maneuvering, partly by fighting, out of Dalton, out of Rosaka, through Adairsville, Kingston, and Cassville. Each army offered battle everywhere, but would accept it only on its own terms. At Dallas, Johnson made another stand, and Sherman, facing the hostile line, began his customary maneuvering for an advantage. General Wood's division of Howard's Corps occupied a position opposite the Confederate right, Johnson, finding himself on the 26th, overlapped by Schofield, still farther to Wood's left, retired his right, Polk, across a creek, whither we followed him into the woods with a deal of desultory bickering, and at nightfall had established the new lines at nearly a right angle with the old, Schofield reaching well around and threatening the Confederate rear. The civilian reader must not suppose, when he reads accounts of military operations in which relative position of the forces are defined, as in the foregoing passages, that these were matters of general knowledge to those engaged. Such statements are commonly made, even by those high in command, in the light of later disclosures, such as the enemy's official reports. It is seldom, indeed, that a subordinate officer knows anything about the disposition of the enemy's forces, except that it is unamiable or precisely whom he is fighting. As to the rank and file, they can know nothing more of the matter than the arms they carry. They hardly know what troops are upon their own right or left, the length of a regiment away. If it is a cloudy day, they are ignorant even of the points of the compass. It may be said, generally, that a soldier's knowledge of what is going on about him is coterminous with his official relation to it and his personal connection with it. What is going on in front of him, he does not know at all until he learns it afterward. At nine o'clock on the morning of the 27th, Wood's division was withdrawn and replaced by Stanley's. 
Supported by Johnson's division, it moved at 10 o'clock to the left in the rear of Schofield, a distance of four miles through a forest, and at 2 o'clock in the afternoon had reached a position where General Howard believed himself free to move in behind the enemy's forces and attack them in the rear or at least, striking them in the flank, crush his way across their line in the direction of its length, throw them into confusion, and prepare an easy victory for a supporting attack in front. In selecting General Howard for this bold adventure, General Sherman was doubtless not unmindful of Chancellorsville, where Stonewall Jackson had executed a similar maneuver for Howard's instruction. Experience is a normal school. It teaches how to teach. There are some differences to be noted. At Chancellorsville, it was Jackson who attacked. At Pickett's Mill, Howard. At Chancellorsville, it was Howard who was assailed. At Pickett's Mill, Hood. The significance of the first distinction is doubled by that of the second. The attack, it was understood, was to be made in columns of brigades, Hazen's brigade of Wood's division leading. That such was at least Hazen's understanding I learned from his own lips during the movement, as I was an officer of his staff. But after a march of less than a mile, an hour, and a further delay of three hours at the end of it, to acquaint the enemy of our intention to surprise him, our single shrunken brigade of fifteen hundred men was sent forward without support to double up the army of General Johnson. We will put in Hazen and see what success he has. In these words of General Wood to General Howard, we were first apprised of the true nature of the distinction about to be conferred upon us. General W. B. Hazen, a born fighter, an educated soldier, after the war chief signal officer of the Army, and now long dead, was the best-hated man that I ever knew. And his very memory is a terror to every unworthy soul in the service. His was a stormy life. He was in trouble all around. Grant, Sherman, Sheridan, and a countless multitude of the less eminent luckless had the misfortune, at one time and another, to incur his disfavor, and he tried to punish them all. He was always, after the war, the central figure of a court-martial or a congressional inquiry, was accused of everything from stealing to cowardice, was banished to obscure posts, jumped on by the press, traduced in public and in private and always emerged triumphant. While signal officer, he went up against the Secretary of War and put him to the controversial sword. He convicted Sheridan of falsehood, Sherman of barbarism, Grant of inefficiency. He was aggressive, arrogant, tyrannical, honorable, truthful, courageous, a skillful soldier, a faithful friend, and one of the most exasperating of men. Duty was his religion, and like the Moslem, he proselytized with the sword. His missionary efforts were directed chiefly against the spiritual darkness of his superiors in rank. Though he would turn aside from pursuit of his erring commander to set a chicken-thieving orderly astride a wooden horse with a heavy stone attached to each foot. Hazen, said a brother brigadier, is a synonym of insubordination. For my commander and my friend, my master in the art of war, now unable to answer for himself, let this fact answer. When he heard Wood say that they would put him in and see what success he would have in defeating an army, when he saw Howard assent, he uttered never a word, 
rode to the head of his feeble brigade and patiently awaited the command to go. Only by a look which I knew how to read did he betray his sense of the criminal blunder. The enemy had now had seven hours in which to learn of the movement and prepare to meet it. General Johnson says, The Federal troops extended their entrenched line, we did not entrench, so rapidly to their left that it was found necessary to transfer Claiborne's division to Hardy's corps to our right, where it was formed on the prolongation of Polk's line. General Hood, commanding the enemy's right corps, says, On the morning of the 27th the enemy were known to be rapidly extending their left, attempting to turn my right as they extended. Claiborne was deployed to meet them, and at half-past five p.m. a very stubborn attack was made on this division, extending to the right, where Major General Wheeler with his cavalry division was engaging them. The assault was continued with great determination upon both Claiborne and Wheeler. That then was the situation, a weak brigade of fifteen hundred men with masses of idle troops behind in the character of audience, waiting for the word to march a quarter mile uphill through impassable tangles of underwood, along and across precipitous ravines, and attack breastworks constructed at leisure and manned with two divisions of troops as good as themselves. True, we did not know all this, but if any man on that ground besides Wood and Howard expected a walkover, his must have been a singularly hopeful disposition. As topographical engineer, it had been my duty to make a hasty examination of the ground in front. In doing so, I had pushed far enough forward through the forest to hear distinctly the murmur of the enemy awaiting us, and this had been duly reported. But from our lines nothing could be heard but the wind among the trees and the songs of birds. Someone said it was a pity to frighten them, but there would necessarily be more or less noise. We laughed at that. Men awaiting death on the battlefield laugh easily though not infectiously. The brigade was formed in four battalions, two in front and two in rear. This gave us a front of about 200 yards. The right front battalion was commanded by Colonel R. L. Kimberly of the 41st Ohio, the left by Colonel O. H. Payne of the 124th Ohio, the rear battalions by Colonel J. C. Foy, 23rd Kentucky, and Colonel W. W. Berry, 5th Kentucky all brave and skillful officers, tested by experience on many fields. The whole command, known as the 2nd Brigade, 3rd Division, 4th Corps, consisted of no fewer than nine regiments, reduced by long service to an average of less than 200 men each. With full ranks and only the necessary details for special duty, we should have had some 8,000 rifles in line. We moved forward. In less than one minute, the trim battalions had become simply a swarm of men struggling through the undergrowth of the forest, pushing and crowding. The front was irregularly serrated, the strongest and bravest in advance, the others following in fan-like formations, variable and inconsistent, ever defining themselves anew. For the first two hundred yards, our course lay along the left bank of a small creek and a deep ravine, our left battalion sweeping along its steep slope. Then we came to the fork of the ravine. A part of us crossed below, the rest above, passing over both branches, the regiments inextricably intermingled, rendering all military formation impossible. The color-bearers kept well to the front with their flags, 
closely furled, aslant backward over their shoulders. Displayed, they would have been torn to rags by the boughs of the trees. Horses were all sent to the rear, the general and staff and all the field officers toiled along on foot as best they could. "'We shall halt and form when we get out of this,' said an aide-de-camp. Suddenly there came the ringing rattle of musketry, the familiar hissing of bullets, and before us the interspaces of the forest were all blue with smoke. Hoarse, fierce yells broke out of a thousand throats. The forward fringe of brave and hardy assailants were arrested in its mutable extensions. The edge of our swarm grew dense and clearly defined as the foremost halted and the rest pressed forward to align themselves alongside them, all firing. The uproar was deafening. The air was sibilant with streams and sheets of missiles. In the steady, unvarying roar of small arms, the frequent shock of the cannon was rather felt than heard, but the gusts of grape which they blew into that populous wood were audible enough, screaming among the trees and cracking their stems and branches. We had, of course, no artillery to reply. Our brave color-bearers were all now in the forefront of battle in the open, for the enemy had cleared a space in front of his breastworks. They held the colors erect, shook out their glories, waved them forward and back to keep them spread, for there was no wind. From where I stood at the right of the line we had halted and formed indeed. I could see six of our flags at one time. Occasionally one would go down, only to be instantly lifted by other hands. I must here quote again from General Johnson's account of this engagement, for nothing could more truly indicate the resolute nature of the attack than the Confederate belief that it was made by the whole Fourth Corps instead of one weak brigade. The Fourth Corps came on in deep order and assailed the Texans with great vigor, receiving their close and accurate fire with a fortitude always exhibited by General Sherman's troops in the actions of this campaign. The Federal troops approached within a few yards of the Confederates, but at last were forced to give way by the storm of well-directed bullets, and fell back to the shelter of a hollow near and behind them. They left hundreds of corpses within twenty paces of the Confederate line. When the United States troops paused in their advance within fifteen paces of the Texan front rank, one of their color-bearers planted his colors eight or ten feet in front of his regiment and was instantly shot dead. A soldier sprang forward to his place and fell also as he grasped the color-staff. A second and third followed successively, and each received death as speedily as his predecessors. A fourth, however, seized and bore back the object of soldierly devotion. Such incidents have occurred in battle from time to time since men began to venerate the symbols of their cause, but they are not commonly related by the enemy. If General Johnson had known that his veteran divisions were throwing their successive lines against fewer than fifteen hundred men, his glowing tribute to his enemy's valor could hardly have been more generously expressed. I can attest the truth of his soldierly praise. I saw the occurrence that he relates, and regret that I am unable to recall even the name of the regiment whose colors were so gallantly saved. Early in my military experience I used to ask myself how it was that brave troops could retreat while still their courage was high. As long as a man is not disabled he can go forward. Can it be anything but fear that makes him stop and finally retire? Are there signs by which he can infallibly know the struggle to be hopeless? In this engagement, as in others, my doubts were answered as to the fact. The explanation is still obscure. 
In many instances which have come under my observation, when hostile lines of infantry engage at close range and the assailants afterward retire, there was a deadline beyond which no man advanced but to fall. Not a soul of them ever reached the enemy's front to be bayoneted or captured. It was a matter of the difference of three or four paces, too small a distance to affect the accuracy of aim. In these affairs no aim is taken at individual antagonists. The soldier delivers his fire at the thickest mass in his front. The fire is, of course, as deadly at twenty paces as at fifteen, at fifteen as at ten. Nevertheless, there is the deadline, with its well-defined edge of corpses, those of the bravest. Where both lines are fighting without cover, as in a charge met by a countercharge, each has its deadline, and between the two is a clear space, neutral ground, devoid of dead, for the living cannot reach it to fall there. I observed this phenomenon at Pickett's Mill. Standing at the right of the line, I had an unobstructed view of the narrow, open space across which the two lines fought. It was dim with smoke, but not greatly obscured. The smoke rose and spread in sheets among the branches of the trees. Most of our men fought kneeling as they fired, many of them behind trees, stones, and whatever cover they could get, but there were considerable groups that stood. Occasionally one of these groups, which had endured the storm of missiles for moments without perceptible reduction, would push forward, moved by a common despair, and wholly detach itself from the line. In a second every man of the group would be down. There had been no visible movement of the enemy, no audible change in the awful, even roar of the firing, yet all were down. Frequently the dim figure of an individual soldier would be seen to spring away from his comrades, advancing alone toward that fateful interspace with leveled bayonet. He got no farther than the farthest of his predecessors. Of the hundreds of corpses within twenty paces of the Confederate line, I venture to say that a third were within fifteen paces, and not one within ten. It is the perception, perhaps unconscious, of this inexplicable phenomenon that causes the still unharmed, still vigorous, and still courageous soldier to retire without ever having come into actual contact with his foe. He sees or feels that he cannot. His bayonet is a useless weapon for slaughter. Its purpose is a moral one. Its mandate exhausted, he sheathes it and trusts to the bullet. That failing, he retreats. He has done all that he could with such appliances as he has. No command to fall back was given. None could have been heard. Man by man the survivors withdrew at will, sifting through the trees into the cover of the ravines, among the wounded who could draw themselves back, among the skulkers whom nothing could have dragged forward. The left of our short line had fought at the corner of a cornfield, the fence along the right side of which was parallel to the direction of our retreat. As the disorganized groups fell back along this fence, on the wooded side, they were attacked by a flanking force of the enemy, moving through the field in a direction nearly parallel with what had been our front. This force, I infer from General Johnson's account, consisted of the brigade of General Lowry, or two Arkansas regiments under Colonel Balcom. I had been sent by General Hazen to that point, and arrived in time to witness this formidable movement. But already our retreating men, in obedience to their officers, their courage, and their instinct of self-preservation, had formed along the fence an open fire. 
The apparently slight advantage of the imperfect cover and the open range worked its customary miracle. The assault, a singularly spiritless one, considering the advantages it promised, and that it was made by an organized and victorious force against a broken and retreating one, was checked. The assailants actually retired, and if they afterward renewed their movement, they encountered none but our dead and wounded. The battle, as a battle, was at an end, but there was still some slaughtering that it was possible to incur before nightfall, and as the wreck of our brigade drifted back through the forest, we met their brigade, Gibson's, which had the attack been made in column as it should have been, would have been but five minutes behind our heels, with another five minutes behind its own. As it was, just forty-five minutes had elapsed, during which the enemy had destroyed us and was now ready to perform the same kindly office for our successors. Neither Gibson, nor the brigade which was sent to his relief, as tardily as he to ours, accomplished or could have hoped to accomplish anything whatever. I did not note their movements, having other duties, but Hazen, in his narrative of military service, says, I witnessed the attack of the two brigades following my own and none of these troops advanced nearer than one hundred yards of the enemy's works. They went in at a run, and as organizations were broken in less than a minute. Nevertheless, their losses were considerable, including several hundred prisoners taken from a sheltered place whence they did not care to rise and run. The entire loss was about fourteen hundred men, of whom nearly one-half fell killed and wounded in Hazen's brigade, in less than thirty minutes of actual fighting. General Johnson says, The Federal dead lying near our line were counted by many persons, officers and soldiers. According to these counts, there were seven hundred of them. This is obviously erroneous, though I have not the means at hand to ascertain the true number. I remember that we were all astonished at the uncommonly large proportion of dead to wounded a consequence of the uncommonly close range at which most of the fighting was done. The action took its name from a water power mill nearby. This was on a branch of a stream, having, I am sorry to say, the prosaic name of Pumpkin Vine Creek. I have my own reasons for suggesting that the name of that water course be altered to Sunday School Run. End of Chapter 3